Guys, I want you to give a big storm Madness welcome to our speaker this morning, Chris, and also Kira, who's going to pray for him. So, guys, come on up. Let's give a big storm Madness welcome. Woo! 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 This is Chris Kandaya. Although we call him Chris Kardashian, okay? So He's the sixth member of the Kardashian family. Chris really. Kardashian. And this is Kira. Hold on. Kira. Oh, Kira's family. Kira, where are you from? I'm Ethan Kildare. Ethan Kildare. Kira, would you pray for Chris before he speaks to us this morning? Lord, I just pray for Chris this morning that you may guide his words and you may guide his mind in your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that each one of his words would have a, an impact on every young person in here this morning, for the rest of the festival and for the rest of their life. Um, Lord, I pray that you may make Chris your vessel this morning and that you may speak through him. Uh, in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Great. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me Okay. Can you see me okay? I didn't realize I was, br I was brown until I came to Northern Ireland. I thought I was just normal till I came here. Actually, that's not quite true. When I went to school, I went to school in Brighton in England. And, um, oh, you've heard of Brighton, nice. And I was the brownest kid in my school in Brighton. And uh, our form room where we had registration was the chemistry lab. Now, a chemistry lab is not a good place to have registration because our teacher used to nip out to have a quick smoke, leaving 30 teenage boys in charge of a chemistry lab. One lad, his name was Nicky Leonard, and he wasn't the smartest kid in the room, it's got to be said. He sucked all the gas he could out of the gas taps and he, he filled his cheeks with gas. And I challenged Nikki. I said, Nikki, what would happen if you put a lighted match in your ear? I was always good at science. And uh, praise God, nothing happened. If, if, if it did, I probably wouldn't be here. I'd be in prison for manslaughter. But it was a dodgy place, our form room. For some clever reason, they used to put hydrochloric acid into squidgy bottles. Now, don't try this, but, but we used to have acid fights across across the chemistry lab. My mum bought me a brand new blue school jumper and on the first day I got acid all over it and it looked like I'd been shot. <laughs> now in the middle of that chaos, one morning when I was 15 years old, a boy came into the class. We all knew him, his name was Steve, he got picked on quite a lot, but he asked if he could address the class. And the teacher said, yeah, that's great, I'll have my smoke break and I'll leave you in charge. And Steve stood up and he said, look, boys, something amazing happened to me last night. Last night, I became a friend of God, and it's the most fantastic thing that's ever happened to me. Now, I had been secretly going to church since I was eight years old. And I went up to Steve and I said, Steve, that was amazing. That is the bravest thing I've ever seen anyone do, to go public about your faith like that. But let me tell you something. Look, I've been a Christian. I've been part of a church for seven years already. I'm an expert. You've only done it for seven hours. And you might not know, but you're supposed to keep this thing private and quiet. You're doing it all wrong. And Steve said to me, Chris, if you knew the God that I met last night, you wouldn't be able to be silent about it. And I thought, wow, this guy Steve's got something I don't have. He had a living relationship with God that gave him the courage and bravery to speak up for truth, even though it put him in danger. And through Steve sharing faith with me, I moved from having a church-based faith, just turning up, being part of the youth group, um, going there because I ought to, 
to having a living faith, a personal faith, a living relationship with Jesus. And it changed my life. And maybe this morning here, that's part of your story. You went to church because your family told you to, or because the youth group is funky, or, as happened to me a couple of times, I fell madly in love with someone of the opposite sex. And uh, that was part of the draw into the youth group. I don't know why Christian girls are more beautiful than everyone else. Must be the grace of God, isn't it? It's not just physical beauty. It's a beautiful character, and that was really attractive. But anyway, now, thanks to Steve, I've got this living relationship with God. And Steve and I thought to ourselves, hold on, if this is true, it's not just true for me and you, it's true for everybody. Everybody needs to know about this. So we made a list. Steve took all the kids whose surnames were A to L, and I took all the kids who had M to Z, and we were going to pick them off one by one and tell them about Jesus. Now, you probably can't tell it from the stage, but I'm really small. I know I look tall, but I'm really, really small. And, uh, but I was, I was strong. And I used to pick kids up by their necks. Don't do that. <laughs> kids are kind of turning into giraffes as I'm holding them. And I'm saying, hey, have you ever considered the claims of Jesus on your life? And the kids go, not until this moment. We were rubbish at it, but through trying to share our faith, loads of questions came back at us. How do you know God is real? What about science? What about other religions? Actually, I'm doing a seminar on that topic later this morning. How do you know Jesus is the only way? How do you know the devil didn't write the Bible? How do you know it's all true? And in that context of trying to share faith, I had to find out some answers to those questions. I phoned my youth worker, I phoned my church pastor, I read the Bible cover to cover. I was trying to find answers to help my mates know the truth about God. And that's why for me I'm really excited that the theme for Summer Madness this year is about truth, isn't it? Some people think truth doesn't matter, but that is not a Christian view. Some people think it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you're sincere. That's not a Christian view. So this morning, I want us to unpack the idea of exploring truth. What does it mean for you if you're a believer or you if you're someone on the journey to faith? What does it mean to consider that Christianity is true? And because true's got such a bad reputation, I want to show you a tiny little video clip. And as you watch it, I wonder if you can guess what's the connection in the video between Christianity's claim to truth. Please roll the video. Yeah. We may have a technical problem with the video. That's okay. If they get it fixed, we'll, uh, we'll come back to it. So the, the video shows some traffic wardens. And they're going around, actually my town, some of them, uh, they're going around Brighton. And they're dropping parking tickets on every car. Even, it, one guy's coming in to have his car help to be parked. And the traffic wardens say, come on in, in you go, in you go, nice get, bit forward, bit back. And then as soon as he's parked, he puts a blimmin' uh, traffic stamp on him and uh, a ticket on the car. And, and I think for a lot of people, when they hear the word truth and they hear the word Christianity, they think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to tell people off. We're trying to tell them that they're, they're rubbish. We're trying to show how great we are. We're using our power to make everybody else feel small. If we get to show you the video at the end, there's a little twist to it. I hope we can show it to you. But I want to argue with you. I want to p- present to you the idea that it does matter what you believe. 
Some people say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Let me show you some examples of places where truth might matter. I wonder if you can put up my next picture. It should be of a road. It's coming. No, that's not it. That's just down the beach around here. Yes! Okay, imagine that you are driving down this road. This looks like a great road to drive down. I used to live in Albania, and uh, there were roads like this that we used to have to traverse. And imagine that you've got one of those nice satellite navigation GPS machines. And uh, you say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. Whatever is true for you, that's true. So you decide to blindfold yourself as a driver. Because truth doesn't matter. It's whatever I believe, right? And uh, you put the the sat-nav on. And you say, it doesn't really matter where I'm going. Because actually there's no such thing as truth. Whatever I believe is true for me. And uh, so you just set a random destination. And you also put it in French. I don't know why you put it in French, just to feel a little bit more kind of uh, intellectual. And uh, you blindfold yourself. Truth doesn't matter. The sat-nav's spouting out directions to a foreign country. uh, But you're just going to follow those sat-nav instructions because it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Do you feel comfortable with that approach to truth? No. Okay, let's try another one. Um, Could you put another picture up for me? Yes. Truth doesn't matter. Has anyone sat exams recently? Did you go into the exam and write at the top, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere? So I actually didn't do any revision because it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Um, And I'm just hoping against hope that uh, whoever's marking my exams uh, also doesn't believe in the nature of truth. Um, again, don't try this at home. This is what happened at, uh, it was the urban myth that was going around my university, that a lad turned up at the exam, and he turned up with two pints of beer, because he was a bit nervous. And uh, the exam board said, actually, you can't come into an exam with two pints of beer. So we said, oh, okay, I can fix that. So he downed two t- pints of beer, and then went into his exam. And uh, he was not good with alcohol. I'm not very good with alcohol. And so he fell asleep in the exam. And um, he, he, uh, he, he kind of didn't, he managed to write his name and then he fell asleep. Now, if someone was marking those exam papers, but they also maybe had had too much beer and they were smoking and managed to set fire to all the exam papers. And so they gave everyone a pass. So someone fell asleep in the exam because they were drunk, but someone else burnt those papers, so he got a pass. So wouldn't that be great if that happened every single time? Then you wouldn't have to revise. But sadly, that is not a great exam strategy. I'll never be invited to Summer Madness again if you adopt that as a strategy. Sadly, that that has never happened, as far as we know, except for that one occasion. So truth matters. You can't just turn up an exam and hope against hope that... That will happen. You can't just hope that the examiner doesn't believe in truth. One more, one more uh, possibility. Imagine you're going on holiday and you're going to fly uh, in an aeroplane. And uh, you notice that the engineer is going to fix your plane. He's going to just check everything's okay before you take off. And uh, the engineer has a T-shirt on that says, there's no such thing as truth. Whatever you believe is true for you. And, uh, and he chucks a spanner into the engine. And he says, well, you know, I don't believe in the laws of physics, I don't believe in the laws of engineering, because actually whatever I believe is true is true for me, and therefore, you're ready to, are you happy to sit on the plane and be ready to be taken to another country? No way. Truth matters in everyday life. Those are silly, silly examples. 
Truth matters in everyday life. So why do we think it doesn't matter when it comes to God? That whatever you believe about God is true for you. That is not a Christian view of God. We believe that there really is a God. That this isn't a myth or a legend. But this stuff that we read about in the Bible, it really took place. Let me show you why. If you've got a Bible or you've got a phone with a Bible on, uh, why don't you turn it on? I've, I've borrowed this beautiful little Bible from the Bookwell. And um, if you don't have a Bible, they have some lovely ones. I, I use a translation called the New International Version because uh, I just like the way that it reads. And if you've got one, why don't you open it up at John chapter 4. And uh, this is a story about Jesus. And the interesting thing about Jesus is the Bible describes Jesus as the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, John chapter 14. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't say Jesus has the truth. It says Jesus is the truth. That's different from any other religion. See, Muhammad, for example, he was a prophet sent from God. That's what Muslims believe. But that meant he spoke the truth, but his life, it didn't really matter how he lived. It didn't matter how many wives he had. It didn't matter who he killed or who he didn't. Because he only had a message from God. That's the Muslim idea. Christians believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so truth is exclusively found in Jesus about God. But it's not just he says true things, he lives true things. There's an integrity about Jesus' words and his actions. Those two things go together. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus in action. I always find if my faith is going a bit wobbly, I go back to the Gospels because I want to meet Jesus again. I want to see what he was like. I want to see how he treated people. And in this story, you see Jesus' character and his personality as well as the truth he wants to communicate. So let me read it to you from chapter 4, verse uh, 3. So Jesus left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now we had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan, came to, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Let's pause there. Some of us here know what a divided world we live in. Some of us, even in our own families, there's division, isn't there? Northern Ireland is famous around the world for the division between Protestants and Catholics. In the UK, we're in a massive time of, of political division between those that want to leave Europe and those that want to stay in. In America, there's a huge division between Republicans who support President Trump and Democrats who think he might be the Antichrist. So there's division all around our world between rich and poor, black and white. And here in Jesus' time, there was division too. Samaritans were a hated group. If you saw a Samaritan coming down the road, you would cross the road so you wouldn't need to be on the same side of the street as them. And there's no way you would share a cup of water. But here Jesus is meeting with a woman. A woman who's drawing water in the middle of the day. If you're good at detective work, you realise the middle of the day is a terrible time to draw water. Even in this heat wave, it's hottest, isn't it, in the middle of the day. 
It was the same in Israel and uh, Samaria. You avoided the middle of the day because that was the hottest time. So you normally got up early or you got up in the evening uh, to draw water because it was normally a long walk from the well to your home. So why is this woman on her own drawing water? Most people think it's because she didn't fit in. She wasn't allowed to hang out with other people because of what Jesus is going to expose in her life in a minute. But Jesus asks her for a drink. Jesus doesn't care about your background. He doesn't care right now whether your family history is Protestant or Catholic. He doesn't care whether I'm Asian or British. He doesn't care whether I've come from a Republican uh, or a um, Democrat history. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't see that badge. He sees you as a person. And actually, he sees you with love. And so he asks this woman for a drink. Verse, nine, verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This is a weird conversation, isn't it? He's talking about water, but he's using it as a metaphor to talk about eternal life. It's a very appropriate metaphor because it's hot and they're by a well. But this woman hasn't understood that Jesus is talking about eternal life. I think she thinks Jesus has got this kind of mega water, maybe like Super 7-Up, that if you have one drink of it, you'll never have to drink again. That would be quite a good advert, wouldn't it, for a drink. Drink this water and you will never be thirsty again. Jesus is saying, actually, I'm not talking about physical water. I'm talking about something else. Maybe you know what it's like to be thirsty. Maybe there's a hunger in your life that you can't satisfy. And you've tried it. You've tried it in relationships with other people. You've tried it with stuff that you've been messing around with that you know is not doing you any good. But there's a hole inside you that no matter what you drink, no matter what you eat, no matter what you do, you're still hungry and thirsty. That's what Jesus is talking about when he offers living water. Let me show you how he gets there. Here he goes, verse uh, uh, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus talks about her relationships, five husbands, and the man that she's now with is not her husband. Why does Jesus do that? Is he just showing off? Is he just trying to do a magic trick like Darren Brown? Look, I am really special. I'm going to talk about something awkward in your life. No, Jesus is showing this woman that she's been thirsty for something that no person has ever been able to satisfy in her. After five failed relationships, she knows that relationships are not the answer. 
Maybe you don't yet know that. Maybe you're hungry and thirsty and you're hoping that there's going to be someone that will come into your life and make you feel good again. Maybe you've been let down in relationships. Maybe you've been dumped or betrayed. Jesus can understand where you're coming from. And he says, you know what? There's something I can give you that no other relationship can give you. I can fill that thirst that nothing else can fill. And so Jesus is talking to her about the true thirst she has in her life. But she comes back at him and asks him probably the most controversial question that she could possibly ask. It would be like asking whether the Union Jack flag should be shown uh, in the centre of Belfast. That's a controversial question, isn't it? That will get people shouting or arguing. It might be going into a Republican uh, pub and... uh, I guess, burning a picture of, uh, of, of the Queen. Um, or, or, you know, it's a way of causing as much damage as possible. She says, you Jews, you say we have to worship in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans say we don't need to do that, which is true. Jesus replies to this woman with great grace and dignity. Look what he says in verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers that God the Father seeks. Jesus says it doesn't really matter where you worship. I'm not going to pick sides in the Samaritan versus Jewish conflict. I'm going to ask you a more radical question. Will you worship God with truth? And in the power of the Holy Spirit. I know lots of churches that do truth really well. And are not so hot on the spirit. I know a lot of churches that are really hot on the spirit. And don't do truth. Jesus says no it's got to be both. You need to know the truth about God. But you need to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way that truth I suppose shows itself to you. As a a genuine worshipper of God in the end, is not just about how well you sing or how much Bible you know or how passionate you are. It's about whether that true worship gets lived out in your life. Let me give you an example. I, um, I've memorised one verse in the Bible that's been changing my life. Maybe you know it. It goes like this. True worship that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is... I don't know. Do you know, do you know how that verse ends? True worship that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is a kicking worship band? No. Amazing Bible teaching? No. Daily time with God? No. All those things are important. But the Bible says true worship that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is to care for widows and orphans in their distress. Have you heard that before? James chapter 1 Verse 27, why does God care that your worship expresses itself in care for those that are most vulnerable? Let me tell you how. All right, I want you to imagine this. My oldest son is really good at cycling. Are there any cyclists in the room? No, okay, a few, okay. So he cycles to school, or used to cycle to school every day. And imagine, even though we live in Oxford, that his cycle route takes him past your house. That might be a bit of a detour. He'd have to cross a, a sea and maybe a few mountains, but just, just go with it. His cycle route takes him past your house. And one day, 
It's been snowing. I know it never snows here in Northern Ireland. It's just sunny weather all the time, just like today. And he's cycling down the hill, and he takes the bend near the corner of your, your house too fast. And his back wheel goes spinning out across the, 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 the ice. And he gets thrown on the floor, and he skins his arms and his legs. And uh, just using his elbows, he manages to make his way to your front door. And you've got one of those brilliant letterboxes. You know those ones, the ones that are on the floor? The ones that are designed to give postmen hernias. But they're great for your Amazon parcels, aren't they? Okay. And this is good for him because just on his elbows, he gets his lips to your letterbox and he shouts, help, help. And you recognise the English accent and you can see he's a brown kid. You go, I only know one other brown person. That would be Chris. <laughs> but it's my son. And uh, you open the door you welcome him in, you bandage his wounds, you give him a hot mug of cocoa, and then with another responsible adult so you don't break child protection protocol, <laughs> you, you put him in a car and you drive him to my house. Now, guys, if we were friends before, we're mates for life now, aren't we? That you would show such compassion to my son and care for him like that. But wind it back. Imagine this is what happened. My son comes down the hill, spins out, skins his arms and his legs, makes his way to your front door, opens the letterbox, help, help. And you go, oh, English accent, brown skin, Chris, Chris's son, okay. And you say, I, I never did thank him for coming to, to Summer Madness. And you fire up your laptop and you compose me a thank you email. But actually, because you're really intellectual, you, you put it in Shakespearean language. It's full of beautiful prose and wonderful rhymes. And uh, I receive that email and I am touched. And then I realise you did that instead of helping my son. How do I feel about you? These flowery words, this wonderful singing, it's no good, is it? If it doesn't translate into genuine care for those that are most in need. Jesus says, I want you to worship me. You know, it doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter how many relationships you've had, doesn't matter any of that. But if you come, if you allow me to come into your life and let me die for your sins, I want to change you. I want to make you the kind of person that loves other people, whatever the cost. I want you to worship me in the power of the Spirit, and I want you to worship me in truth, true worship, to care for widows and orphans in their distress. And so here's Jesus offering this to a woman who's had a really difficult past, but he still says to her, come, you're welcome in my family. You're welcome into the kingdom of God. Just as the band come up and we move to a time of response, I want you to see what happens next in the story. As soon as this woman realizes that she's loved by God, she puts down her water jar and she runs into town. And she says to everybody, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. That woman reminds me of a little boy, a 15-year-old boy in my class in Brighton. He was only a few hours old in the faith. But he realised if God loved him and accepted him into the family of God, then that was good news. That was truth worth sharing with the rest of the world. And so as we begin to respond in song in a second, I want to invite you to take part in what God is doing. The true God, the living God, wants to welcome you into his family. 
He wants to turn your life upside down, no matter what you're in, no matter what the state of your relationships, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. God says, come, come receive living water. Water that means you will never thirst again because God will fill the hole that you've been trying to fill in your life. But once you've received that living water, it's time to pass it out to the rest of our world. And so I want to invite you, if you're someone here that either doesn't know God, you'd love to know him, you're like me, you you, you kind of grew up with a, a lot of church, but not necessarily a lot of a relationship with Jesus. We're going to invite you to come and someone would love to pray for you. But I'd like to ask the rest of you that know where you are with God to think about how you might share your faith. Maybe there are people in your family, maybe your mate, maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend, they don't know God yet. And you know what? You would love it if someone would pray for you today that you might be like the woman at the well and like that little boy in my class, the means by which they might come to know Jesus. So stand if you can. And as we sing this song, if you're someone that wants to know God, brilliant, come forward, maybe come on this side and the team will pray for you. And if you're someone that wants to help make God known, why don't you come on this side? And all they're going to do is pray for you, that you might have the courage to share the living water, the true love and mercy of God. We'd love to have you part of that.